From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Groundsman. This time, you will notice shortly that there are only two of us here because one of our number is um, is still basking in the afterglow of our sports summit last week and taking uh, some much-needed time off after all these efforts going into organising uh, what was a fantastic fantastic event so that leaves the two of us myself and my other groundsman Giles Morgan holding the fort Giles come in mate how are you I'm good actually it's nice to have a little bit of a break having uh, been sweeping the square for some time on this uh, metaphorical uh, cricket wicket or whatever we're preparing uh, every week as groundsman you need to be very careful with your metaphors my friend because you have been known to get them in all sorts of a tangle and have your your lawnmowers and your pirate scabbards all mixed up do you know i have i saw some uh, saw some friends recently uh, who i used to work with uh, in the city and uh, they were just remarking on these various sort of personas i seem to have evolved they said no idea what i'm doing and i was forced to agree i don't know if i'm a captain or a groundsman or what have you but there we go former banker M- many would say still still one <laughs> very simple we, we, are, we are listen what we do is find you a plank and get you to push a lawnmower along it that should solve everyone's problems <laughs> um now listen, I, I, we are missing our our third musketeer, um, but that means you and I get a chance to talk about rugby. And I, I meant to ask you this the last time we recorded one of these, and I I was caught up in an awful lot of other stuff and and forgot to ask you. But I, I wanted to get your opinion on the end of that epic Bledisloe Cup game uh, the other week in uh, in Melbourne. Um, for anyone listening that didn't see that uh, Australia New Zealand rugby match, which was I mean it's just a fabulous fabulous game of rugby. Anyway, um, tied at half time. The Kiwis went in front long enough that you thought they'd be out of sight. The Aussies pegged them back. Uh, the Aussies tied it, then kicked a penalty to be leading by three points with essentially no time on the clock. The Kiwis get a penalty uh, down in the corner near the Aussie line. They kick for touch, trying to get a try and win the match. They turn the ball over. And all the Aussies have to do is kick the ball out to win the game and win the Bledisloe Cup for the first time in, what, 17 years, 19 years, Giles, a long, long time. And Bernard Foley, who'd had a fantastic game at fly half, um, kind of dithered on the ball, taking his time, hoping to run the clock out so that the, the, the hooter would go before he kicked the ball out and the game was absolutely dead. And just as he took his first step into his run-up, the French referee blows the whistle. Um, Jimmy and I were watching this in Scotland. Uh, actually, not Jimmy and I. I was watching it with uh, a buddy of mine who we was playing golf with. Watching it in Scotland, we didn't have the sound on, so I didn't quite understand what was going on. Um, but it turned out the referee, French referee, had blown the whistle, called for time wasting, awarded uh, a scrum to the Kiwis, who promptly took the ball as time ran out, scored a try, won the match, won the players' look. It was. It was absolutely unbelievable, Giles. And that's that's really just a catch-up for anyone that didn't see it. Anyone that did see it is already either fuming or dancing around their Auckland uh, living room. What did you make of it all, mate? Because it was I've never seen anything like it. I don't think any, any of us have. I mean, if any team um, is going to win like that, it's going to be New Zealand. They seem to have <laughs> more luck um, in terms of just the way they have won many, many test matches in the last minute through controversial decisions. There's a very famous example in the 70s where Wales, who'd never beaten the All Blacks for God knows how many years, uh, uh, there was a, 
someone jumped out of the line out basically very famously got a penalty and and Wales didn't win so this isn't entirely new um and I think it depends on which side of the Dutch you live in uh, live on in terms of how you feel about it I imagine the Kiwis and I used to be uh, uh married to one so I can imagine what my former in-laws used to th- would have thought about it which is you know, they were running the clock down and the referee had nudged Foley to get a move on. In fact, many of his players were saying, get a move on, and he didn't. At the same time, it did seem, given that he was in the middle of about to kick the ball, um, what else was he going to do? Um, it, it felt like pedantry of a referee on the most monumentally French scale possible. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I don't know where I saw my instinct when I saw it. I too was watching the game. I, my instinct was I felt very sorry for Australia because one, I think we as Brits always will support the underdog and the Wallabies really haven't won the Bledisloe for a very long time and they played brilliantly and I think they were the better team on the, on the, on the night. So impartially, I felt for them. But there was also part of me that felt, well, fair dues, you were running the clock down, you have been told not to and you've been pinged. I just think the cadence for me, if you're asking me which side I fall on, I'm probably marginally on the side, and this isn't to do with alimony, um, I probably fall on the side of um, Australia, where I just felt the, the, the timing and cadence was wrong on the referee's decision. But it, it does sort of throw up a bigger issue, which rugby is really reeling from at the moment, which is too much referee intervention in the game, so that you've got scrums, you've got lineouts, you've got the technicalities of rugby, which are complicated anyway as a sport being um over reft by the guy in the middle who has an impossible job let's be honest it's not easy to be a referee but i think you'll remember the lions series of god whatever it was 18 months two years ago where i think it took the game 104 minutes for a lions test match to be played in in normal time just because of referee intervention And rugby is a game that thrives on fast flowing of quick decisions. And let's be honest, the greatest try ever scored um, by Gareth Edwards, started by Phil Edwards, uh, Phil Edwards, Phil Bennett. Many would argue that Derek Cornell, who took the ball from his ankles, it might well have been a forward pass uh, that he delivered to Gareth Edwards. So I I feel over-refereeing, over-analysis kills the sport. And the sport right now, as we know from the club game, financially it needs all the sport and love it can get. That game against New Zealand versus Australia was the perfect showcase for Southern Hemisphere rugby at its very best. And for the game to be, well, the fact we're talking about it probably means it's box office for the next time they play. But I don't think it helped the game. But um, I probably felt a little bit sorry for Australia. But I say that, what Australian has ever felt sorry for me? So, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah, the, the only thing I've seen that, that comes close to that, I remember in the World Cup in, who was it, 82, when, uh, where's been Clave Thomas? See, he was refereeing Brazil against, uh, was it Sweden? God, I can't remember, but, but uh, Brazil had been time-wasting and uh, they get a corner, they take the corner and as the ball is, halfway to the centre of the goal, he blows the whistle. No one hears it, but he blows the whistle. Zika, I think it was, heads the ball into the goal. Brazil scored the goal that would have won the game. Everyone runs off celebrating, and Clive Thomas is waving it off, saying, no, no, I blew the whistle. And sure enough, when you watch it again, he did. So the goal was disallowed. You know, it was an epic, epic referee intervention that caused so much commentary at the time and, you know, everyone pulling the thing apart. Now here we are, 40 years later, Christ almighty, I'm old, 40 years later. Um, and it's just one of those things you remember as a, just a weird and wonderful moment in, in refereeing. Well, the trouble is as well, you see, with technology coming into sport, um, as well as, you know, if you're an old-fashioned sports person that grew up playing football, rugby, cricket, whatever it is, ice hockey, doesn't matter, and officialdom is there to 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 look after the game, you know that the, the referee's decision is final. And if it's not with any technology or camera, you just get on with the decision, even if you know they're patently wrong. And we all moved on. The trouble is now is that with sport completely technologically obsessed and um, where there is every angle of every movement of everything going on in tennis and squash and, and all the rest of it, is that we, the fan, expect perfection from the ref. 
And if the referee gets it wrong, whether it's on a technical um, basis or on something like that, which was an interpretive piece from, I would argue, from uh, from Mathieu Reynal, the, the French referee who blew up, he was just using his judgment at the time. And he may quietly regret that he'd blown the whistle as Bernard Foley was beginning to kick. But he made the decision and that was the decision. And it's difficult. We've become very, very harsh critics because of technology and also scrutiny of individuals who are, after all, just trying to do their best. Best. I don't believe for a moment Mattia Reynal is uh, in any way anti-Australian or on a bung from New Zealand. He just he may have just got his timing wrong and blown the whistle a bit late. He in his head he may have thought three four seconds ago before bloody Aussies they are just taking the piss. I've got a blow, but by the time he did, Foley yeah, was in. Yeah, no, I'm I'm sure that's how it happened. But yeah, for me, right, Giles. See, without this, if there'd have been, let's say, a, a, the, the TMO had come down and and re- overturned that decision. Okay, but but. I mean, you've got nothing to talk about. You know, that, that's why when, when we're trying to make the referees perfect, it's always the refereeing decisions that you end up talking about. It gives the fans something around which to anchor their tents and pick a side and argue and debate. And, you know, if you if you have perfect officiating, you lose one of the most beautiful parts about sport. And isn't that the bigger point? And that is that it's a beautiful yeah. point, that, that actually the whole point about sport is it is neither fair, it is certainly not perfect, and it certainly allows for, for triumph and disaster, for underdogs. It, we can't ever quite predict what we think is going to happen. And if we could, if sport was always binary, then it would be pointless. Yeah, I agree. And, and it's funny, I mean, this wasn't deliberate on my part, but we've, we've set ourselves up perfectly, given that last part, to, to introduce the gentleman who's going to be joining us in a second, Giles. So why, why, don't, you, why don't you do that? Because he's, he's about to come on. Yeah, well, I'm thrilled. Um, I've known this guy for for a very long time. When he was um, playing his few tests for the uh, England cricket team back in the early 2000s, I was uh, a lowly sponsorship manager working with Vodafone. So I got to know Ed Smith, who was at the time playing for, for Kent and got elevated to the mighty ranks of England. And he had a fairly... He got a good start in a, in an August, I think, two thousand three. But it, it, by September, it was all over for him, um, and that was kind of the end of Ed Smith as an international cricketer, but not the end of Ed Smith, the person. Um, he is for me the living, breathing definition of a modern day polymath, and I really mean that in its most pompous way. Yes, he played um, cricket for England, which is no mean achievement. He is an academic. He was at Cambridge University where he got a double first, no mean achievement. He is an accomplished and very, very uh, proven author, a journalist for the Times newspaper for many, many years. He's now a professor where he um, runs a, a major master's, a master's degree in sports humanities with Buckingham University. And until a couple of years ago, he was the England national selector that really kind of regalvanized the England cricket team in terms of how teams were selected. Um, he he was injured aged about 32 and that was the end of it and went straight into Test Match Special with the BBC Radio for British, uh, British um, listeners. They'll know that is the kind of quintessential um, radio um, sort of the radio cricket programme that basically brings cricket to life, particularly during the summer. Um, he is maybe the most interesting person I know about sport because he's a historian of sport as well. He... He, he cares deeply about the roots of why sport matters, why fandom matters, where sport came from and where sport may be going. So for our podcast on Are You Not Entertained, um, who better than to have Ed Smith join us on the show? Ed, a very warm welcome to The Groundsman and to Are You Not Entertained. Lovely to have you on the show. This has been a, a long time coming and it's brilliant to have you on. Great to be with you, Giles. Well, the first thing is I, I, I set this up to, to everybody because I've known you for quite a long time over my career and, and more recently with your work with the Institute of Sport Humanities and the many conversations we've had about many different things um, is that you seem to have done an awful lot in your life and you are the living embodiment to me of a polymath and and I am not. What's it like to be a polymath? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very flattering introduction which leaves me nowhere to go. Um, so I deflate that um, presentation of me. So, so the, I think that 
someone said once that a polymath's bad at everything. Um, so that's how it feels. Um, I, look, it's, it's funny, isn't it? When you, the, the slightly difficult thing about doing lots of different roles, which I have done a range of different things, is you get to walk around your limitations in lots of different ways. So if you want to know, you know, where your ability ends in all different sort of dimensions, then try lots of different things and come up against the, the very limit of what you can do. And actually, that's very much the experience of writing a book, I think, is that you, you, um, I was very conscious, you know, it's the first time I've written a book for 10 years. I was very conscious of writing, making decisions, you know, that, that I'm kind of, there's no second chances anymore in terms of development. I'm 45. This is probably, you know, I'm not going to get any better, I don't think. Um, and therefore, I just wanted to do the very best I could. Um, but also, I was very conscious of, of, you know, where my abilities end. And I tried to write a book that was as short as possible and as truthful as possible. Um, and then I guess it's over to the readers. Well, let me ask you that. It's interesting. You haven't published a book for 10 years, but some of the, the, the earlier books that you wrote, the four before, I think, or three certainly four, were yeah. absolute bangers. Um, and, and, you know, I, I was an absolute avid fan of your writing. But one of the things that strikes me about sports people is that very early on, they go through their first inverted commas death, where they mm. have to retire, you had to go through injury and, and, and that curtailed your career, you were 32, I think. What's it like 30, then? 30-ish. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a youngish man, there could have yeah. been five more years, but there wasn't. And you had to then turn to other things. In terms of writing and getting back into the habit we had did you have to sort of give yourself a confidence boost boost that you could still do it that's a it's a really interesting question i i think i think to take the first part of the question first it is a useful thing to go through a retirement uh, you know a kind of career end relatively early i also think it, it gave me the, the habit, which links to your very first question. It encouraged me to develop, you know, what Nassim Taleb calls some anti-fragility, where I wasn't just one thing. And that came quite early to me. So maybe that was, was useful. I think, secondly, one benefit of being a sports person is I think it, well, it can, it did for me, it, it kind of inoculates you against thinking it's about being famous because you've been close enough to that world to see that it's actually about, you know, achievement. And almost everyone gets to that point in the end, however um, you know, deep their flirtation or fascination with being well-known is at some point in their career. So I think that was useful. You kind of, I never wrote to get a name, I think that sport had taught me that probably wasn't a good idea. Um, in terms of coming back, I mean, you know, one of the things we've missed out, and this is not a program about family, but obviously there are two children, you know, one of whom is nine and one of whom is six. And and I don't agree with um, Cyril Connolly's famous line that there's no more solemn enemy of art than the pram in the hallway. I definitely don't agree with it, but especially because I wouldn't, you know, claim to be an artist, but it's interesting that life gets super busy. Um, and the, the kind of solitude I think you need to write a book is harder to come by. But then again, that has upsides too, because you, you think, look, if I'm going to devote a year of my life or more than a year to trying to distill, clarify, uh, simplify, order ideas, you know, I really want to do it as well as I possibly can. Um, so I think it was not so much a confidence boost as a, it needed to feel right at this stage of life, and it did. And I actually found writing the book a lot of fun. Ed, can I ask you um, a writing question? I've, I've dabbled in writing myself, and, and, I, and I find the process fascinating. But I'm curious, you know, when I sit down to write, um, I'm not famous and I don't have a background that people want to know about like you do. And so when I sit down to write, I'm writing purely for myself. I, I don't really think about the audience when I write. I write to get my thoughts straight and to put them out to an audience who for some bizarre reason are interested in the way I think about the world and think about certain things. But for you, I imagine there's an expectation because they want to know what it's like inside the England cricket team. Well, they want to know how, how you think because you, you have a profile. Do you find that when you sit down to write, you're, you're torn between those two stools or do you, do you pick one or the other and go down that road? Uh, look, it's a very interesting question. And I, I, my instinct is that, the way you write is where 
the best writing is usually done. And I think that's I, I can I can point to thousands of people who will challenge that for you, but please <laughs> <laughs> not even thousands, Grant. <laughs> I think I think when I feel most, you know, when it's most enjoyable, I think is when you do feel you're writing predominantly to get it straight in your own head. Yeah. Maybe particularly if you're, you know, it's a slightly pretentious term, but an essayist, or that's where you feel comfortable, where it often starts with something personal, an inquiry, a jumping off point, an attempt to bring some order to a set of experiences that then maybe involves jumping off into something else as well and some research and some analogy, some other areas, which is typically the way I write. So I think you do, you do want that sense of discovery. And there's that great line, you know, Robert Frost, you know, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. Yes. And I've never... I think it's much harder to write well if it's just a working out of something you're going to say and you always knew you were going to say that. It needs to be that element of openness. In actual fact, that that was something that my my last book, Luck, taught me, that which which was part of me changing a little bit how I viewed the world rather than it being win-loss as the axis. There was also closed open. And how what degree of openness could you fold into your experience and your journey, if you like? And that was a big lesson uh, through my career. I think I became much more open-minded over the 13 years as a professional cricketer. So I think you're right. And my dad, who's a you know, much better writer than I am, a novelist, playwright, um, has written a very good memoir about teaching called The Learning Game. You know, he always says, if you're struggling, he would just say to me you know, when I was young, if you're struggling with a part that you're writing, Write it as a letter to one person, one friend, and just tell it truthfully and personally. Funnily enough, I think that kind of applies to everything, that the most brilliant people I know, even if they're discussing major risks or decision-making with serious consequences, are able to talk about it as though they're just trying to helpfully explain what feels like the best course of action to someone sitting right opposite them. I think that is part of being a good communicator and of course writing is one form of communication well your book that's just been published making decisions it it, it feels to me incredibly apposite timing given that in the united kingdom right now leadership and decision making is um you might argue a little bit flawed by some of our politicians has that been something that particularly with your sport and, and what you do with the institute of sports humanities the whole notion of leadership do, do you find yourself sort of yelling at the television, wishing that some of these politicians could come onto either your course or read your book and just learn just how to sort of go through the process? Because I, I know I do. Well, I think the first thing is that, that you know, it, when I was selecting in and cricket squads and teams, it felt like a very demanding and difficult job. And of course, being Chancellor of the Exchequer or Prime Minister is an infinitely harder job. So you know, you, you defer to the challenge of the job. And I think in some ways, political life has got much harder in the age of social media. Probably many office holding roles have. You know, Arsene Wenger described the, the transition from a vertical society to a horizontal society, where the, the sense of um, default respect for office has disappeared and the idea that one opinion is, is as valid as another. So I think it's an incredibly difficult time to be in public life, making decisions. That's the first point. Secondly, yes, I I, I do feel um, that there's a lack of support for leadership. I think perhaps there's a lack of, perhaps that's institutional. You know, if, let's take sport as an example and then we can maybe transfer out. You know, when I became captain of Middlesex, I was 28 and I wanted to go study somewhere that would help me as a practical leader but I couldn't really find anywhere, you know, and then that led me to 10, 12 years later to set up the Institute of Sports Humanities, which was designed to nurture leaders across different roles from the performance side to the business side of the sports industry. Now, I'm sure there are lots of institutions that have tried to do that in politics, but I, it feels to me that people have to learn very much on the job. And sometimes, of course, there's a tension between ambition and experience. I think if there's one thing, um, that sport definitely taught me it's not to want things too early because sometimes people do have what it takes but they just get there before they're ready and i think you know there is a 
a danger with being precocious or gifted young that sometimes you you get opportunities that actually will be better off coming later in life. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, you know, I find this really interesting talking about politics. But you know, to me, if you are prime minister, um, close to fifty percent of the country didn't want you in that job anyway. So you, you begin you begin with half the country wanting you out, and so you're in a you're in a tricky situation. And anybody who is ordained by you in a in a ministry role um, is really cast under the same shadow. But to be an England cricket selector. You know, you're in charge of something that literally everybody who cares about loves. There's no one that hates the mm-hmm. cricket team who's bothered about cricket, right? So, you know, when you take that role on, you are the steward of something that people care deeply about. They care about it way more than they perhaps should in the context of who's sure. running the country and making those kind of decisions. So, you know, to be in that role and have every uh, decision scrutinized by people who really care about something that, look, at the end of the day, Giles and I have talked about this before, it doesn't matter. Sport matters in so many ways. But whether we beat the Indian cricket team or we lose the Indian cricket team in a test series, it matters an awful lot in the moment. But it doesn't change lives apart from the players. How, how do you take on a responsibility like that, well, knowing that it's tough to really... And do I didn't think about any of that. This is where actually the little bit of the... <laughs> A few traces left of sort of unconsidered uh, self-confidence <laughs> came to the fore. And there were two questions about that. Dan Vittori, just who's a great friend and a brilliant man, and captain of New Zealand, head coach uh, in the IPL, which is Bangalore, now assistant coach in Australia. You know, he said to me, God, you know, everyone hates selectors so much. And I said, I've never thought of that. You know? And then the other thing, Mike Atherton said to me when he interviewed me for the Times soon after I'd taken the job, he listed a, a series of extremely distinguished ex-cricketers who'd become selector. And he said, you know, they were really just completely smashed when they were head of selection. Did, did you worry about that? And I said, no, not really. I just, so so maybe that's the, the part of my character, which is um, unedited, which is I just thought, you know, I can probably help and, and, and maybe we can win some more games. And I was pretty focused on that. In some ways, even though, the, the nature of this conversation is we're looking at hinterland and books and all the rest of it. But in actual fact, I had an incredibly straightforward, almost simplistic attitude to, to the challenge of selection, just to win more. Um, and I was very pragmatic. I have my frameworks and my ideas, but I was prepared to, uh, to adapt them and, in the pursuit of victory. Ed, how can you just go back in time? I know that 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 the selector days is now behind you. You're doing. You're so busy with other things. But you, were, I think, I've got this right. You were writing for the Times. You've been writing for many years, and all of that, and been a, a fierce observer of the game in and sports more in general. What happened? I'm still hoping that you know someone might ask for my opinion for a selecting for for, for some team of a, a, or another. What happened? Who called you? What was well, the, the process? ECB, the ECB approached me, and I initially said I was too busy and too you know basically too happy with other projects. The institute also writing a history book and teaching, so that was how I felt. You know, my master students and loving life actually, and then. You know, I found I was thinking about it a lot in those few days. Um, and I did go back to the ECB and said, look, you know, happy to put my name forward. And then there was the formal process and um, and they ended up offering me the job and I accepted it. So what I found was that actually, and this is, if you like, the first decision of the decisions discussed in the book, is that that decision to go back into being judged, being accountable, having skin in the game, putting your reputation on the block was not weighed. I didn't think, you know, pros and cons. It was just intuitive. I just found myself caring and thinking about it. And my heart took over and the book begins, you know, with the Van Morrison line, you know, if my heart could do the thinking and my head begin to feel. And that's, you know, we all know in life that important decisions are very seldom calculated. It doesn't mean they're irrational and it doesn't mean they're not rigorous. They're just not calculated or calculable. Um, and going back into to high performance sport was one of those. The other thing, of course, and this t- t- touches on maybe that sort of slightly cocky thing I said earlier on that, you know, I'll, I'll just 
just get in there and, you know, we'll focus on wins and I won't worry about anything else. <laughs> um, the, there's a part of you, I think, in sport, which is not properly grown up. And I always think I'm, a, you know, past that and I'm out of it and that I'm now going to do something serious with life and be an, an adult. And it's around about that moment that the phone rings normally and someone says, how about doing this? And I say, no, 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 can't you see I'm, you know, terribly grown up these days. And then a, you know, a few days later, I ring, ring back and say, okay, when's the flight? Let's go, you know. So there is that thing about sport, isn't there? And which is also, so there's that childlike magic of being part of something, a sense of mission, and also the feedback that, you know, however good you might be or however fulfilled you might be in something else, there is nothing like the game, you know, the game which yields a result, which isn't always just, but, you know, let's not worry about that if you've won. Um, you know, it's, it's something else, isn't it? And I often, you know, would, would tease Dan Vittori, who invited me into the IPL team he was running, which gave me that, you know, refresher, reminder that I wasn't a grown-up at all and I still just wanted to beat the other guys. <laughs> uh, and then that, that sort of led in directly to the selector role because I was in that space mentally. Um, I said, look all the, all the trouble you've got me into. <laughs> now, now it's a World Cup and an Ashes and all the rest of it and I'm completely absorbed. Ed, you, you, obviously you've written a book about decision-making and, and you, you wrote uh, recently a beautiful op-ed in the Financial Times um, talking about, you know, decision-making and, and data particularly. You know, data is something in the world that I inhabit normally that is, that is so crucial. And I'm, and I'm fascinated by this juxtaposition between that having that data. You talk in the, in the op-ed certainly about Joffre Archer um, and how you guys picked him, even though a lot of people said you shouldn't. How do you, how do you balance that, the ability to, to look at the data and, and find things that say to you, you know, this is a risk we should take, with that other side of you, your default side, which is the game and winning the game and those, those just heartfelt instinctive decisions that as a sportsman you learn to make, not while sitting down looking about, but on the pitch, in the moment, as the ball's coming at you, you're making decisions on the fly that can turn games. Yeah, unfortunately, the, the latter category of decisions, they, they ended when I was 30, you know. But the, um, look, the first thing to say, and, and this in some ways connects with, and this, and, and you know, Giles's introduction was very interesting, and, and making decisions does feel like a kind of culmination of all my thinking over the years and how it's developed, because I think I was naturally very confident. Some people said overconfident. And then I actually learned, you know, the value of skepticism and doubt. And part of that was getting interested in behavioral economics. Um, part of it was you know, actually staying close to the times I was wrong and really trying to grapple with that. And part of it was just the natural curiosity of finding out where good ideas were that I hadn't had. And that led me around the world in sport and also in other areas too. I didn't know what I was doing in that phase of my life. But when I was selector, I realized I was drawing on all those curious voyages to go and talk to the economist Kenneth Arrow in Stanford when I was meeting Daniel Kahneman and talking about decision-making through the lens of him being very skeptical about human judgment. All these areas were, or avenues, ended up filtering into selection. So I think I was quite conscious that there is a spectrum between certainty and, if you like, a hunch. And although you never know exactly where you stand, I think even being aware that there's a spectrum is helpful. The case you, ex the example you referenced was Joffre Archer. Well, first of all, I thought he was brilliant with my eyes. Right. Secondly, we did have lots and lots of very good data about Joffre, which proved that because he played a vast amount of cricket in the IPL, unusually mm. for someone who hadn't yet played international cricket. And because IPL games are all televised, you get Hawkeye data, which presents a kind of X-ray vision of the game. And we could see that he was better than everyone else. And unusually for the selection data team, we were normally quite careful not to slip into prediction mode. But at that World Cup meeting, we did say, not only do you think he should be in the 15, we think he should be in the 11. Not only do you think he should be in the 11, we think he'll be the best fast bowler. And Joffre got 20 wickets in the tournament. And which was an England record across all World yes. Cups, blah, blah, blah. But it's also true that many times, um, well, first of all, uh, as a, a sort of final part of that story, 
if that sounds like data won the World Cup, think again, because without Owen Morgan's brilliant captaincy in that super over and all the way yes. through the tournament, you know, they're going to be panning onto a very different expression on the selector's face. You know, so you, <laughs> you know, there's execution of that decision and all the soft skills that, that Owen showed in that moment. Above all, I think it looked like he was enjoying it. And if you're in, you look complete, I would say you look completely present in that bit of captaincy yes. in a way that a great, great batsman looks completely present as they're waiting for the ball. This is what I've got. These moments, this body language, these decisions, these field placings, this tactic, that is the life I'm living and I'm going to live it. Now, he probably didn't, you know, that probably was already baked in, but that's how it came across to me. So he's doing the right thing with his life, you know, captaining, directing, talking, living that moment. But of course, so let's just say that Joffre Archer is at one end of the spectrum where, you know, you can make a very robust statistical case that he's an outlier in terms of performance. The other end of the spectrum is where, you know, lots and lots of people have been tried for a role. You know, no one's succeeded at it. And you're going to have to make a judgment on incomplete information, on, non- on non-transferable evidence, using, you know, an element of intuition. And actually, some of the selections I'm most proud of uh, are ones where we stuck with people for a significant amount of time who were under a lot of pressure. Yeah. Joe Denley, Keaton Jennings, who who actually held, you know, onto that sort of strength of character under extreme pressure and didn't take anything away from the team. They kept sort of contributing even under great personal pressure. And I don't think those things can be captured by an algorithm or machine learning. So I think it's, you know, data is one source of information, increasingly rich source of information. Yeah. It's one source. Then, of course, scouting, which is sometimes called scouting data, but that makes it sound more objective than it is. It's an aggregation of subjective judgments. That's also very useful. Then there's, you know, feedback from coach captain and there's the discussion with the selector james taylor who was a brilliant colleague and then you've got to bring it all together so i think they are the inputs and it's how you weigh and reconcile those different sources of information that will determine the decision and i think that applies to almost everything it's very easy to think that you can wash your hands of responsibility easy and wrong and say the data says. I never said that once on announcing a team because as soon as you say the data says, yeah. what are you yeah. doing to start with? Um, you've talked yourself out of a role right. and you need to actually accept responsibility for the judgment. Um, very, very rarely can you say the data proves something. You can say it's an input. Um, and that's why the book is significantly about the enduring role of judgment even in the data age, which I think gets lost in that, um, in the way people tend to see data sort of pushing human beings out the way. I I don't see it that way. Well, I mean, that super over to me, it was was such a a beautiful example because, you know, here you have all the data that led to Joffre's selection. He performs um, as the data suggested he would, which is, it doesn't always happen, as you say. But then there's that human decision to say, okay, you've performed really well, but I'm going to hand you the ball with the World Cup on the line. This is not a tournament now. This is six balls that will define English cricket, the tournament, perhaps your career. And you still, the data is not going to tell you this young man is ready for me to hand him this ball right now. It's not. Although (laughs) I always thought Owen would bowl Joffre, but that's not, that wasn't a data decision, although the data would have supported it. But no, it's a human decision. And then, yeah, I think it was Ben Stokes who had the great line to Joffre, you know, this over won't define you, um, which is, a, you know, a smart way of diffusing the situation. Um, but yeah, it did feel actually in writing the book, it did feel like a kind of metaphor for the mm. intertwining of the human and the, the scientific strands of selection, which I think characterised how we went about those three years. Sometimes I think mis, misperceived as being, you know, scientific and, you know, data dominated. I think that was one strand of it. And we had a brilliant data analyst in Nathan Lehman, who's an original thinker, but there was much more to it than that. We were always thinking about the human context. And in particular, we were always t- thinking about 
the makeup of the team rather than just X, B, Y. I think that's an underestimated part of selection that, you know, Johan Cruyff said, if you pick the best one in every position, you'll get 11 good ones, not a good 11. And yeah. I think in any team, whether it's cricket or football or business, it's the way the pieces come together, which is likely to be as, at least as important as the pieces themselves, which is nothing to do with fluffy sounding team spirit. It's just to do with complementary skills. Mm-hmm. That you need people who bring different things to the table, which ironically is how I felt about the off-field team, that you know, James Taylor, a very young selector, you know, 28 when he was appointed, brilliant knowledge and insight about his peers and the current generation, modern cricket. Nathan Lehman, a mathematician's lens, but also, uh, you know, very interested in Buddhism and novelist, much more rounded than most sort of pure mathematicians. And then Mo Bobat, who really organized the whole performance machine, scouting guru, captain, coach, all that good information. And then you pick a way through it. Uh, do you think you were ahead of the time when you building a team like that, which is using data, but using data with interpretation, which is your, I guess, your humanities, your historian background is take the information and interpret it. And, and do you think you were ahead of the time? Did you have inspiration of others that you'd seen either in cricket or other sports of people who had sort of approached selection management, call it what you like in the same way? I think it was something that I learned as I went. I think actually my first impulse was, you know, how can we, it's an ugly phrase, but how can we get close to optimizing selection? And in the effort to kind of solve, you come up against the impossibility of that ever happening. And you realize your value is in the bits that can't be solved or proved. And that's the, the, where the human being comes to the fore. I think history actually was useful because in the same way that history had its flirtation with pretending it was a sort of formal science. And if you just had all the information and all the facts, history could be proved. It's ridiculous because a complete history of anything today, this week, would be so long you couldn't print it, let alone write it. So, you know, there is an infinite amount of information and the historian's job is not only to unearth, but to interpret and to make editorial decisions about which bits of information are important? Well, that's the same thing in selection, isn't it? You know, you could be completely, you know, you could have the smoke completely covering your eyes if you looked at every data point for everything. You'd never make a decision that was any good. You've got to home in on where there's something significant in the data. Uh, And in a sense, that is like being a historian. You've got to have a sense of what matters. In Mervyn King's, you know, great phrase, all good strategy begins with something like what's going on here. And I think that's a brilliant, actually, I'd say Mervyn King and John Kay's book, Radical Uncertainty, which was published, which I read in draft form when England was in Sri Lanka in the autumn of 2018. That was actually a very important book because I felt that emboldened things that I was already circling around in particular, the idea that you had to understand what was going on before you could kind of impose any rules or strategy uh, or formal approach. And in a sense, I was very lucky because I'd watched a lot of England in, in the few years before becoming selected. So I thought I did have an intuitive sense of where the teams were at. Changing tack a bit, but keeping on the history theme, um, obviously that... <laughs> 2000 that world cup was was a historical and fantastic moment one of the things you and i have discussed a lot um over the years is and we live in a technological time now where there's a digital revolution every aspect of life is being changed by data analytics technology new engagement human beings are being um robotized i don't think that's a word but go with it but when you look back i know one of the things that you love to, to with your real historian's hat on is the history of sport, particularly modern sport, let's say the last 170, 180 years. In those sort of moments of moments that define sport, and I know that, again, you've talked about them before, of the moments that changed and shaped sport, is there a, a moment 
now or a moment in the past which you think is the most defining and changing of how sport is and how it um, both embraces society, etc. I'm just, I love this conversation with you anyway, which is why sport matters and how is it changing and how does it continue to change? And we've got three hours well, left on this I, podcast. <laughs> that's such a difficult question. Um, you know, historically, there are so many moments, I think, you know, and often twinned with technology, whether that's the radio coming into the living room in the early 1920s in America, a technology which had never been imagined as a source of entertainment, but became the way in which sport entered our daily life, regardless of whether you were at the stadium or not. Then, of course, you know, the state gets involved, particularly in the 20s and the 30s, and sport becomes a projection of soft power. So you get the controversial World Cup in 34 in Italy, obviously the Olympics in 36. And then television sort of supercharges sport and it becomes something that no one could have imagined after the Second World War. Um, so there are those kinds of moments at which well, there's a tipping point or sport is entangled with the way we live changing. What I'm going to say is has nothing to do with any of that, actually. And I'm just going to talk about a moment that I think relatively recently that showed what sport can do and surprised everyone in the way it happened. And there's a recent sort of final chapter to it, which I think was very in keeping with the story. And that's the 2008 Wimbledon final. I actually had a broken ankle and I'm watching it in West London with my then fiance, now wife. And I'm in a low air because I'm worried I've, you know, ended my career and I've got a double fracture in my left ankle. And it's one of those dreamy summer's evenings where it feels like it's going to be light forever. And there's something particularly special about watching sport on television in a, in a, the middle of a city when you feel that everyone else is doing it too and you almost can work out how late their tv is actually playing by when the cheers go up and whether they're watching on you know cable tv or sky or whatever because it's just, everyone's watching it for a half a second differently and that game between federer and nadal to me it was the fact they recognized in the moment that they were doing something very special and that then became part of the magic they didn't they almost didn't want to interfere with it. And of course, I think instinctively they understood that they were not only rivals in that moment, but also accomplices. And, and that they were part of, they were pushing each other to places where the sport had never been before. And then of course, recently, so what does that tell us about sport? Well, to me, it tells us that it was the most brilliant refutation of the idea that winning is about being a, an unpleasant human being which we were partly brought up on in the 1980s. Uh, and everyone thought that would be the way professional sport progressed towards tantrums and cheating. It doesn't have to be that way. And if you like, Gary Sobers was right. You can just be brilliant. Um, you don't have to cheat and you don't have to sledge. And there are these two brilliant, you know, youngish people pushing each other in ways that they can't even understand, but it's happening. And then, of course, I think that their tearful handshake, you know, the other day, Federer's last game showed that they they needed each other, and there's that's so often true when where greatness is concerned in all spheres of life, whether that's the arts or sport. It's that sense of the person who pushes the other person to even greater achievement, um, and the magic of that relationship. To me, that captured one of the very central threads in the development of sport, which is that, you know, I, I often think back to photographs of my parents and they're always listening to the same albums and they're always huddled around the, the vinyl, the turntable, and it's Dylan and the Beatles and everyone listens to Dylan and the Beatles. That's not true for my bunch. You know, we don't know what we're listening to. It's just everyone's atomized and listening to, you know, Apple or Spotify or whatever. I've got no idea what my friends listen to. But those big sporting events still bring us together in a way that nothing else does. So I would say sport is the last great live event. And ironically, you know, it was a, uh, a brilliant singer-songwriter, Leonard Cohen, who said that 
in the 60s, music was the mode. It was the way we understood heroism. And now it's sport. And yeah, they're of course, simplifying and exaggerating to, to make a great line. But I think there's some truth in that. Um, and sport has become not only a beneficiary of globalization and changing habits and tastes, but also an, a primary engine of the way we live. Um, and it's one of the few things that you can sit down at a dinner and sort of make a pretty decent guess that people were watching the Federer and Nadal final the night before. It, um, I, you know, I, I want to pause and just give what you just said there time to breathe. Cause I think that is, that's absolute poetry. It, it is such a beautiful way to describe what we're talking about. And, and we've, we've talked about this on the show before, um, uh, you know, and our, our, our missing third co-host, uh, Roger Mitchell, um, who, who knows more about sport than I'll ever know and, and has a much better radar for what's happening next. And, and we talk often about this idea of beef. Where's the beef? And Roger says the fans need the beef. They need the, the, an, the antipathy between protagonists. They need this kind of sense of artificial something that, that, that riles people up. And to me... I always take the other side. I take what you just said there. For me, I remember years ago someone said to me, you know, why do you watch sport? You know, why do you because I'll watch anything. I'll watch any competition, whether I know the players or not. And I and I had to think about it. I, I kind of gave a flippant answer at the time and, and I and I went back to them a few days later and I said, you know what? I, I realize what it is. I said, I watch sport because there's a very high chance that whenever I do so, I will see somebody do something that I could never do. I'm just incapable of doing. And it's not about the winning or the losing. It's those intangibles. It's about performance. It's about uh, just being in the arena and being able to to play your best or perform your best. And, and what you just said there about Federal Nadal to me is a better answer than I've ever thought to give in my life. That 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 tennis match, like you, I watched that and was devastated when it ended because I'm a huge Federer fan but it, it didn't matter to me as much as I wanted Federer to lose to win it exactly and it a didn't matter and, that, and actually that's you know let, let, let's the analogy between sport and the arts can be strained and it's obviously inexact because an athlete's trying to win and an artist is probably trying to create something that lasts so there's there are different activities you're not world making as a sportsman in the way that an artist is, you know, to sounds a bit pretentious, but I think that's a fair summary. But of course, the, the greatest moments in sport achieve a kind of resolution, which touches the arts. And many times in those great rival in, in the matches between those great rivals of Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, Murray, you know, and let's be honest, I also usually, despite being a Brit and admiring Andy Murray enormously, I'm a big Federer fan too. I often found that I ended up being on both sides of the net because I thought what they were yeah. doing was so amazing. And that didn't feel, that actually found like a very civilizing experience. It goes beyond wanting someone to win. You almost just want the truth to emerge. Yes. And all you want them to do is to keep giving of themselves. Actually, that was something I felt within the first few points of the Raducanu final at the US Open, that you just mm -hmm. felt both players were just giving of themselves and it was just played with such an openness and a joyfulness. And you're like, this is going to be amazing. You can always just sit back and, you know, it turned out that, you know, our player was, was even more amazing and won a brilliant match. But there was a sense that that was the spirit they took to the field. And I think sport can be like that and actually that was something that brendan mccullum showed us when he was captain of new zealand he said you know what guys we're we're going to get rid of all this rubbish about needing to be hated and needing to be unpleasant we're actually you know we're human beings and we're going to lose our temper and we're going to sometimes you know be flawed but we're basically going to go out there and play cricket that's what we're going to do do you think that's why something like the British Lions rugby and maybe the Barbar Barbarians rugby before had that same effect is really what you wanted. It was just to watch. It wasn't about the winning and losing. It was just about the exposition of skill. Do you think that's related? Yeah, I draw a little bit of a distinction there, Giles, because I think I, I was 
you know, as a big rugby fan growing up, I've probably been more moved by the Lions because you feel there is actually a great investment in the winning. It's both. It's the mystery and the winning coming together. There's actually a great story about selection. And I'm just saying this from memory, having not seen it, the film for maybe 10 years. But I think in the first Living with Lions, when Ian McGeekin is coach, and they had incredible access for that first Living with Lions because I think they, you know, they, they were a bit more amateur about just chucking <laughs> it out there. And I think it was just organic. They had the selection meeting for the first test and then they had their 15 and their and their bench. And then McGee said, hang on, hang on. No, no, it's not quite right. It just feels a bit safe. And he changes the front row. And, you know, that was an iconic selection. And he said, I just want to take a bit more of a risk, something fresher. And actually, that was one of the things that, you know, my colleagues got bored of me saying. I'd sometimes near the end of the selection meeting say, have we got enough batting? Have we got enough bowling? Have we got enough optimism? And yeah, optimism doesn't only mean youth, because sometimes you're bringing in someone who, who's convinced their best days are ahead of them, are ahead of them, who might be older. But that's one of those intangibles in selection that you, you want the team to be fresh psychologically, which doesn't mean to say they, you know, have they aren't tired physically, but they they have a degree of collective optimism that they're forging their reputation, not protecting it which is another great insight of Federer. Federer gave a brilliant interview to the New Yorker when he was world number one. And he said, I never want to play like I'm number one. I was going to, I want to go and take it from the other guy. Because he said, you, you can't play tennis with a protective mindset. You have to be acquisitive. And he said, I want to go out there and boss the other guy around. And like, I need to you know, assert that, not just say, I hope if I stand in the corner and protect, you know, I'll stay number one. To me, that's a very deep insight and actually something that Brendan McCullum brought this summer. It was like, guys, you know, we're, we're not going to talk about losing. We're not going to talk about technique. We're not going to talk about whether your front foot needs to be an eighth of an inch further to the offside. We're going to go out there. And he's got a ball. We've got a bat. And we're going to take it to them. Human beings respond pretty well to that. Within the craft and the technique and the skill, which of course you need, they're, they're the prerequisites. But the greatest coach I ever had you know, he could do two things. He could brutally criticize me while still making me laugh, which was a brilliant thing. You know, so instead of this kind of like, I've got a little bit of feedback for you, you're amazing, but he'd just say, Jesus, come and watch this. This is me doing an impression of you batting. Look how bad this is. And it was John and Verarity, a brilliant coach and head of selection eventually for Australia. Incredibly technically gifted as a player and as a coach, could spot the tiniest things. But he'd often just say, Ed, Bowler's got a ball, he's coming at you, you've got a bat, you're coming at him. Let's assert yourself and you know, make sure that he's got something to think about. And he would switch the pressure back onto the bowler just by changing your mindset. As well, a bad coach would sort of say, let's sit down and you know, let's rebuild this. There's a place for that too. But John could, could flip it from, you think you're going to fail, do you think you're going to succeed inside a few minutes? Let me ask you one more question. Um, This has been absolutely wonderful. And I I do hope you'll come back and continue this conversation with us because I I know Roger would just be salivating at some of the things we've talked about here. It's a date. We'll Um, do it again. I'd love to. But uh, let me just ask you, there's been a a whole slew of um, inside sport documentaries coming out, you know, the Drive to Survive, and we've seen the the Sunderland Till I Die and all the the nothing shows about all the football teams, American football teams, Mm. and they're fascinating for us as fans. Um, As someone who's who's a fan, obviously a sport, but has been on the inside, uh, what do you make of those documentaries, both with your fan hat on and... Imagining yourself in a dressing with those cameras there, what do you make of them? I'm fascinated to hear what a top class, someone's had a top well, class sporting career would make of them. They haven't grabbed me that much, actually. Okay. Um, so, access and truth, the relationship between those two things, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, the sports documentaries I've admired most in recent years been where I felt a deeper truth about sport emerged from a true story. Senna, yep. I think free solo. Now, obviously, in the case of you know, Ayrton Senna, this is done after he's died. This is, there's a huge amount of brilliant footage that's never been shown before, which brings it all alive. 
But to me, you know, there are two things that emerge in that film. One is a brilliant exposition of his relationship with risk, which is not normal. Um, glamorous, but not normal. And he can tolerate more of it than, you know, <laughs> than the rest of us. And secondly, his relationship with the beauty of driving and his art and his sense of synchronicity with the machine in some ways actually you know Ayrton Senna is the human in the machine isn't it where it becomes one almost unbeatable unified uh entity so I found Senna amazing I think with Free Solo I thought what was really interesting about Alex Honnold you know and who also had a great line about risk when when he said I don't think that climbing El Capitan without you know ropes is should be considered a risk. I think it's high consequence. <laughs> so it's high consequence rather than very risky. And, yeah. and in that case, I think it's about what I got from that film was that here's someone for whom greatness and relationships are unusually separated to are separated to an unusual degree, um, which is, you know, a very raw nerve for athletes because often they're yeah. not easy to be around. You know, even at my level, I think I, you know, I subconsciously wasn't in favour of being married and having kids when I was a player and wasn't, as it turned out. And I thought that, you know, self-obsession and maybe selfishness was part of it. Um, so I think that, those films to me did, and obviously in the case of Free Solo, there's a huge amount of access all the way through. I think when it becomes, you know, when it feels very heavily curated mm -hmm. and managed, then of course, you know, you start to doubt yourself a little bit. So I have yeah. gone as far down. But I, I think television can tell sporting stories incredibly well. And I think um, there's more to do there, you know, in terms of... Well, that's why, the, that, that's why the living with lions was, was so spectacular. As you say, it was warts and all. You give players camera to, and access that probably in a modern world would never be given. Never so you got, the, you got the sense of what it was like to win a Lions tour um, in South Africa in 1997, which was so fly on the wall, it was kind of extraordinary. And now I think you're right, is it, you wouldn't get that curation or it would be too curated? I think so, Giles. And I, I think, therefore, the challenge for the filmmaker now is how do you get around that sort of compromise? Uh, you know, and it sounds a little bit pretentious, but, you know, there's, that, there's a great line by D.H. Lawrence, you know, artists are usually a damn liar, but the art, if it's art, will tell the truth. I feel that something similar can be said about athletes, that they often don't really know how they do things or why they did it. But if you just watch them closely enough, it, it emerges. And Giles, that's, I think, part of the genius of Simon Barnes, our, you know, mutual friend who was just unbelievable sports writer for the Times. And then you know, the 1980s and 90s when I was growing up, there'd literally be, you know, family arguments at breakfast about who got to read Simon Barnes's piece. And then, you know, if it was in the same section as Matthew Paris's, it was going to be a really big row because, you know, then you'd have both. Um, and my sister and I would be sort of tussling over the newspaper. But I thought what made Simon so incredible at the peak of his powers was that he got to the story without needing any access. He just watched. And of course, that that's the most inspiring thing, isn't it? If you're a young writer, you know, you think if this guy can get to those truths just by watching closely, it's a little bit like an incredible critic who, who doesn't need to interview the writer. He's just happy with the work. Um, so there's a role for that type of analysis of sport too, not just relying on what someone says. Ed, um, look, I have to say, this has been, I choose my words very carefully because I'm talking to an accomplished writer, but an absolutely beautiful hour of insight into 
so many things, um, so many tangents, so many aspects of the world of sport, and I, and I cannot thank you enough for this. We have you on tape committing to come back and do it again, and we will be shameless and we'll be spread that if you don't agree to come back because this conversation feels half finished to me, and I, and I know Roger will be will be mad as hell that he missed it and and so eager to join in the second part. So thank you so much for doing this. It's, it's just been wonderful. I'd just like to add to that as well. Please, please keep writing please just keep going another book please i know it takes you a while but my bookshelves are never quite right unless i've got my entire ed smith collection just there charles Charles has colored in all of his books and his bookshelves (laughs) so he definitely needs some more guys it's been such a pleasure and i should say it's unusual to have such a you know high crossover in terms of interest and when i first met giles you know we were torn between talking about Welsh rugby, the British Lions, Roger Federer, Tim Hemman. It was there was so much to talk about English cricket. So um, it's been a, it's been really great to um, to dig into some of those themes on your podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ed. We'll 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 see you again soon for sure, whether you like it or not. <laughs> great to see you. Wow, honestly, I am I'm speechless. That was just phenomenal. What what a, what a great mind. What a great man. What a beautiful way to talk about this thing that we care so much about that means so little. Absolutely. He is a, you know, there aren't many people who can claim to be such deep thinkers of sport, but also having been an athlete at the very highest level and then someone who's been involved in the heartbreaking um, role of having to make or break people's careers as well and to understand all of that. And then to put it into... Well, into many syllables, he, he is a he's a wordsmith as well. Um, just a, for me, a joy. As I said earlier at the top of the show, I've known him for a long time, and there's never been a conversation where I haven't just learnt and learnt and learnt from his own uh, perspective on the world. I, I've been waiting for this moment to have him on the show for a long time, and sure, he delivered. Well, he de- definitely did, and I, I genuinely do feel sorry for Rog at uh, that he missed that because when he listens back to it, he's going to be absolutely fuming. <laughs> Well, listen, that's the end of another conversation. Uh, thank you out there for joining us. I, I sincerely hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, it was just magnificent for me. You can follow us, if you don't already, on Twitter. You'll find us at Entertained R. That's the word A-R-E. You'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you'll find me, Giles Morgan, at Giles Morgan 71 And you know I'm going to have to do it. You'll find Roger Mitchell at RPM Como, as in the leak. As in the lake. Thank you very much indeed. Good night. Good night.